Okay, if you could um, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We have a long text this morning, so I'm not, I'm actually not putting it up on the screen. So, uh, grab your Bibles, open up 1 Corinthians 15. Um, I believe in most of the pews, if, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you. Briefly recapping last week's sermon, Paul's, um, as Pastor Keith spoke on last week and preached, Paul is continuing this, really this theology of the resurrection. And it's very practical. And, and, and really, I mean, this is the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians, and, and Paul spends a great deal of time on the importance of the resurrection. And so, though I don't have much time to recap because of uh, how much text we have to cover this morning, we are going to continue the importance of the resurrection, and I just want to hit the three uh, main truths of the last few weeks as we've been going through this. The first one is the resurrection is true, the resurrection is essential, and the resurrection draws near. And with that, let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Paul begins in verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you are and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is one... And the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for, their differ- for star differs from star in glory. So also it is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the, earth, earthy, as is the earthly, 
so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing to you as we open up your word. And as you speak to us this morning, I pray that uh, my words would be in the background, Lord, that it would not be... uh, I have nothing of my own to offer this morning. But I do thank you, Lord, and pray that you would uh, bless the preaching and the teaching of your word as it goes forth, that none of us would leave here unchanged and without worshiping you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So like I said, there's quite a bit to cover this morning. So as you see in your bulletins, the first few verses, 29 through 32, it says, boldness because of the resurrection. So Paul, in continuing on his point of the importance of the resurrection, uh, need to realize, what we need to realize is that what Paul has just covered is that uh, in the previous verses before we got to our passage this morning is that Christ, Jesus Christ, has the victory. Verse 27 For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Earlier, Paul seems to quote Psalm 110 too, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will reign until all his enemies are destroyed. And then when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself, who also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so so that God may be all in all. We have to remember, when we're talking about the resurrection, when we're living our lives, when we're reading scripture, all authority in heaven and earth belong to Jesus. Jesus, when he says that in Matthew 28, um, he's not being metaphorical. All authority in heaven and earth belong to Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul said there's not a rogue molecule in the universe. Not even Satan moves without the permission of our Lord. He is sovereign over all things. And it also means that all authorities, therefore, answer to Him. The authority in the family. The authority in the church. Even the authority of the government. Ultimately, all will need to answer to His authority and submit themselves to Him. So then Paul says in verse 29, he has this conjunction. He says, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with the wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? So again, he's addressing another hypothetical problem if there is no resurrection. The first thing he says is, if there's no resurrection, then what will those do who are baptized for the dead or on behalf of the dead, depending on how you translate it? Now, the the point of this sermon is not to focus on this verse. I know for some people, maybe that's what you were waiting for. There are about 40 different interpretations of this verse. 
Um, I think what Paul is talking about is he's talking about these uh, apostles who had witnessed the Lord Jesus, and some are still alive, but some are dead, and it might have been a kind of baptism that honored them, not in a sense of um, paying tribute to them, but a baptism in the sense of recognizing that I am being baptized today because so-and-so, whatever their name would be, preached the gospel to me. And now they are departed. But really, this isn't the main point of Paul's argument here. The main point is, if there is no resurrection, why do the baptism at all? If there is no resurrection, why be in danger every hour? Paul is speaking of himself and his ministry companions. He even says when he's in Ephesus that I fought with wild beasts from Ephesus. And what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? So Paul faces the dangers of ministry. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been persecuted by his own people. And it's interesting that he brings up Ephesus here because what we have in the book of Acts is really the longest period of time that we see Paul staying in an area. He spent three years in Ephesus and he did this because of his belief in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 19, we have a bit of history of what took place for Paul in Ephesus. It said it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. So, picture this. Paul enters into Ephesus and he sees some disciples there and he basically preaches them uh, into more maturity by them recognizing that they needed to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. But then with these 12 men, Paul continues his ministry in this otherwise God-forsaken city. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So Paul enters the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews. And it says he speaks boldly, reasoning and persuading them with the kingdom of God. And it says that some are saved. So his disciples grow, right? Some are saved, but some become hardened by Paul's preaching. Now this is an interesting thing to know. That Paul's bold preaching actually makes some people more hardened to the gospel. Sometimes Christians are so worried about sounding, or not sounding nice enough and turning people off from the gospel... And for, I think, a lot of people, that's why they're afraid to evangelize. 
But that's exactly what Paul's faithful preaching does here. It saves some, and it hardens the hearts of others. God uses the gospel to both soften hearts and harden hearts as well. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. People witness the miracles of God, and it doesn't mean they come to faith. Sometimes it actually hardens their hearts even further. Faithful preaching. Sometimes with faithful preaching, God uses bold gospel proclamation to soften hearts, and at other times he uses it to harden hearts. But then what happens if we see then Paul moves to the Gentiles? And in verse 10 it says, This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now think, think of that real quick. He was there until all in Asia had heard the word of the Lord. Let me ask you, has everyone in Aurora heard the word of the Lord? Remember, this is, this is not a large band of people. This started with just Paul and 12 other men. We have more than that here this morning to start with. So we have to ask ourselves, has everyone in Aurora heard the word of the Lord? And the follow-up question needs to be, why not? And then it says that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even his handkerchiefs or aprons were carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempting to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, seven sons of one, Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul. Maybe some of your translations say, I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus that was being magnified. So we see Paul moves with his small band from the synagogues, preaching boldly, softening the hearts of some, hardening the hearts of others. And then with that small band, which grows, he then moves to the Gentiles until all in Asia has, had heard the word of the Lord, the gospel of the kingdom. And then through this ministry of Paul, as his ministry becomes known to all the people, fear falls upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus is magnified. Why? Because God is working through Paul and not through those false religious people who are trying to kind of just use magic tricks to get rid of demons. What we see Instead, as we see the disciples of Jesus battling the demonic army, and that's what Paul and his disciples have been doing in Ephesus. And I think the demonic army doesn't seem real to us today because most Christians aren't battling them. In fact, a lot of professing Christians, unfortunately, are joining the demons in their work. Faithful gospel preaching and faithful discipling will bring about spiritual warfare. Not so that you can draw a crowd and grow somebody's leg longer, 
Not so that you can, you know, make a scene by, you know, casting a demon out of somebody in the middle of church service. But faithful gospel preaching, because of what it does to the hearts of men, oh, it, 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 in some sense, awakens the demonic army. It awakens spiritual warfare. You don't have to have spiritual warfare in a place where everybody's already dead. And I would also add, doesn't part of you want to be a faithful minister of the gospel to the people in your life to the point where the demonic army would say, well, we know Jesus and we've heard of you. Right? We've heard... I'm not saying necessarily audibly here, but I'm speaking in terms of the fact that when Christians are not living out this resurrection life, when they're not living out this gospel life, I don't think we should be expecting the demons to, have, to be having heard of us. Well, then the gospel continues to spread. Many also, verse 18, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. The, the whole climate of the city is shifting because of the preaching of the gospel, the faithful preaching of the gospel that started with one man faithfully preaching to 12 other men and then going out and continuing this ministry. Now the whole society is being flipped on its head. And after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. And you know what? Let me... Uh, uh, he purposed in his spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into uh, Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, uh, sorry, Demetrius, uh, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned of her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So what is the fear here? The gospel spreads to the point where it actually gets the attention of wicked businessmen. Why? Because people had stopped using their businesses. Because their business contributed to the worship of false gods. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if faithful Christians stopped using wicked businesses because of the false worship and because of the leading people astray and the leading people into sin that they do? 
Could you imagine if professing Christians stopped using Planned Parenthood? Now, you may be surprised, but yes, there's quite a few number of people that go into Planned Parenthood that I talk to that profess to be Christians. Or how about businesses who worship the government and the state by forcing their employees to get vaccinated or lose their livelihood? Could you imagine if Christian says, no, no, we will not support your worship of the state. No, we will not support your worship of sacrificing babies. So the church in Ephesus stopped giving them business and it hurt. And so these businesses gather together and they persecute the faithful and bold Christians. Why? Because it hurts their pockets and it hurts their gods. Preaching the kingdom of God shows that all other kingdoms must either submit or perish. And this will upset people when their gods are found worthless. And that was the fear of these people in Ephesus, that Artemis would be found worthless, and it filled them with rage. And yes, the world will be filled with rage towards bold Christians who unapologetically preach the kingdom of God. That this Lord, our Lord, Jesus, is real, and your gods are worthless. And that gets people mad. And so the Gentile idol worshipers hated him, and the Jews, it says, even in chapter 20, the Jews even joined and plotted against him. And these were the wild beasts that Paul talks about that he faced in Ephesus. And we need to be aware that the savage wolves that he promised would come keep coming even today. But all of this only matters because of the truth of the resurrection. So my question is, do you believe the resurrection like Paul believed the resurrection? Will you face the wild beasts? Will you face the wild beasts of Aurora? Will you face the wild beasts of maybe even your friends or your coworkers or your family because you believe the resurrection is true? Or Paul says, flipping back to our passage, If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the resurrection isn't true, then just do what you want. If there's no resurrection, you might as well have fun until you die. Quite frankly, this is really a way to tell if we believe what we say we believe. Is your life a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ and the bold proclamation of his kingdom? Or are you entertained to death by the love of the world? Are you zombified by your countless hours watching TV or playing video games? Are you willfully ignorant of the world around you because you got food and drink and everything else you need is just a click away? In fact, one of the... Uh, one of the um, I would say the unfortunate signs of the American church would be a statement that goes that when it comes to church, I wouldn't miss it for the world. But if something else came up, I would definitely not go. In other words, our comfort, our love of money, our kids' sports or other activities, maybe even a really good football game are more important to a lot of Christians than even gathering for worship on a Sunday morning. But then we say that we believe this resurrection.
It's time to wake up. As Paul says, wake up, O sleeper. Stop wasting your life. Don't follow the dead religion of cultural Christianity. Believe the resurrection in such a way that the truth of it grabs hold of you, that it compels you against all else to boldly preach this gospel, to boldly live this gospel. Paul continues in verse 33 and 34. He says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God and I speak this to your shame. So Paul says, Do not be deceived. Don't be corrupted by those who reject the resurrection. And I see this in two different ways here. Through false teachings and through false life. Don't be corrupted by those who reject the resurrection through their false teaching. Don't spend your time listening to false teachers. This is bad preachers and those that we know are false preachers like we've talked about before. Those who preach a false false prosperity gospel or those who preach a false uh, social justice gospel that is uh, void of the resurrection. But it's also the teaching of the world. Let me ask you, are you being taught more by faithful Christian preachers or by the world? This is one of the problems, one of the serious problems with the direction of the public schools. It's false. It's secular teaching. We cannot think it's responsible to send our children to such deception. The reality is our children do not know the word well enough to battle that kind of deception. But it's not just false teaching, it's also through false life. The Word of God is very plain and very clear in the book of Proverbs that we do not spend our lives hanging around lazy fools. Now, let me break that down a little bit with a question. Who are your close friends? Are they strong believers or are they gluttons for the world? Are they wise Or are they wise in their own eyes? But Christians, we have a hard time discerning these things because many have no knowledge of God. As Paul says, this is to our shame. You need to know the Word of God. You need to study it. It needs to pierce you to the heart. It needs to transform our minds. How will you even tell if someone like me preaching up here swerves from the true gospel in my preaching if we don't know the word of God? So that's why Paul says, become sober-minded. And I think what he means here is be transformed by the word of God to biblical wisdom. Think and discern biblically. Look at the world through new eyes. Look at the world through resurrection eyes. In order to do this, you need a biblical worldview. So he says, be sober-minded. And then he says, and stop sinning. Be pierced by the word of God to confession and repentance. Don't rest in your sin. Don't minimize your sin. Let the word of God bring you to tears. As James says, mourn over your sin. Don't laugh over your sin. Mourn over your sin. When was the last time the word of God brought you to tears? Has it ever 
Have you ever sat there reading scripture and been so convicted over your sinfulness that you were brought into mourning? Then you are ready for the good news of the gospel which brings joy and healing as you cry out for God's forgiveness and in his mercy he faithfully answers you and he pours out his grace. Have you experienced that? One of the most amazing, this is a little tangent here, but one of the most amazing experiences I can in recent memory have with scriptures is I was reading Ephesians chapter 1 and I was reading this before the foundations of the world, he predestined me to adoption in love. And I was thinking and meditating on that and it brought me to tears as I was realizing that before the foundation of the world, he knew every sin that I would ever commit, every time that I would deny him, every time that I would blaspheme his name, every time that I would reject him for the love of the world. He knew every time I would ever do it in my entire life, and yet his love for me was so strong that even though he knew all that, and even though he knows that I'm a weak man who will continue to do it for however many days I have left on earth, that I will still fail to live up to a holy standard, even though that is who I am, and he foreknew that about me, he predestined me to adoption in his love. You need, if you are here this morning and you have not experienced the power of the resurrection, I implore you that you must be born again. Your heart must be changed. Otherwise, if that's not you and you're not interested in that, then as Paul says, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Your life has no meaning apart from the resurrection. This brings us to our last few verses here. Where he says, But some will say, How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? He says, You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. So finally, Paul speaks of the nature of our resurrection. Doubting the resurrection, he says, is foolishness. But the question of the Corinthians is, how then can our frail, weak, and sinful bodies become immortal and incorruptible? And so Paul then spends the rest of this, these verses for uh, our time this morning giving us a picture of the nature of our resurrection. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. It is like the plants when a seed is sown. It is buried in the earth but given new and greater life. But it will be the same kind of plant. Our physical bodies will be the same in the sense that we will still be humans. We will still look like ourselves. Verse 39 says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. We will not have the flesh of beasts. We will not come back as some sort of animal. We will come back as humans. 
Verse 40, there's also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. We will not be resurrected into angelic beings. Contrary to what many believe and what the movie Angels in the Outfield teaches us, when we die, we will not become angels. We remain human. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. Our physical bodies are part of the image of God. And our physical bodies reflect God's glory in the same way that the heavenly lights back at the creation of Genesis 1 display the glory of God in their own way from creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky reveals His handiwork. Day to day they pour forth speech. Even without speaking, the psalmist says, the sun, the moon, and the stars are uh, given the job as heavenly lights to reflect the glory light of God. In the same way, we as people as male and female created in God's image, created in God's image res- reflect a specific part of God's glory and we will do this for the rest of eternity. And so he says in verses 42 to 44 that our resurrection will be in the same physical body but incorruptible. Then in verse 45 through 49, he says, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy, and as is heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have been born the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. The nature of our resurrection is a complete transformation, physically and spiritually. The idea here is that physically and spiritually, we came from the first Adam. And because of the fall of the first Adam, we inherit that corruption. We are immoral apart from God. We are lawless apart from God. In fact, Romans 1 tells us that we are not neutral towards God either. We are haters of God. There is no neutral ground. There is nobody who is not a follower of Jesus but says they love God. They may say it. They may say they they follow some form of God or some false religion, but the reality is the Bible teaches that if we are not united to Christ, if we are not born again, then our disposition is that of hating our Lord. And because of that, we all deal with the physical effects of the fall as well. Death. Among other things. But then we are born again in Christ. This is the second Adam. The first Adam, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. But the last Adam, which is Christ was a life-giving spirit. He creates a new world through His resurrection. And we first enter that world spiritually by being born again. 
And then at the resurrection, we will enter into that kingdom physically. So Adam and Eve were made in God's image to glorify God through obedience and worship, and Christ fulfilled what our first parents failed to do. But now we, Paul says, will still resemble our earthly parents. And even though we resemble our earthly parents in appearance, we have now been called to Christ's heavenly mission because we have been given Christ's heavenly spirit. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. That's what it means to be a temple. That the Spirit of God has come and dwelt within you. And because of that, we will then be raised to the same kind of glorified body as Christ. So this is the truth, this is the reality that motivates Paul to live this life of self-sacrifice. And I, we need to ask ourselves, we need to examine our hearts, and we need to genuinely ask ourselves, is that truth enough to motivate us to live the same kind of life? Is your life moving from old to new? Christian, can you look at your life and see that you have been sanctified by God and that these things that maybe you were struggling with a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago, that God is working in you. Maybe when you started as a Christian, you were very fearful of preaching the gospel to somebody and now God has been working in your heart to give you the courage and the boldness to preach. Maybe for some of you, this is going to be best expressed in if next week when we have the singing together. Where maybe you look back a few years ago and you say, you know what, there's no way in my life I would ever do something like that. But now because of the sanctifying work and because of the truth of the resurrection that has grabbed hold of you, compels you to praise the Lord and bring glory to God. The reality is, is we will be resurrected into whatever we worship. We will either be resurrected into glory or we will be resurrected into destruction. You can call yourself a Christian, but if you worship the world, your resurrection will be that into destruction with the rest of the world. So we need to examine our hearts. We need to examine our lives. And if we are found wanting then the solution is very clear from Scripture. Cry out to God for salvation. Ask Him to heal your broken heart. Ask Him to make you new. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins committed against Him. And ask Him to transform your heart and your mind to be a servant to Him and to His kingdom and no longer be an enemy. And if you do that with a genuine heart, He is faithful and just to forgive you. He will answer. And so I pray that you would do that this morning if you have not already.